Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because of its wickedness. Its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tar. Tarsius, he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying, for, paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarsius to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out in his own, to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone, gone below deck where he lay down and he fell asleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will notice us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to, said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah replied, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. He replied, And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. After a meaningful fall series that we called Seek First, I'm excited about spending the next series in a particular book of the Bible, kind of the way that we do it here at the Vine is we like addressing uh, specific issues and specific topics that we'll explore together, and then we also like to balance that out with actually exploring particular books of the Bible or sections of Scripture as we 
plant ourselves in God's Word. And so we're going to do that for the next four weeks with the book of Jonah. We're going to take one chapter per week, and as always, to get the most out of it, we'd encourage you to not only uh, to come or to listen to these messages, but to be a part of our small groups that explore that, not only what we're learning, but also how to apply it to our life. And we also have postcards for each week for our own personal reflection. Does anyone have one they could lift up for us? We have them on the way out, so they provide you opportunities for reflections throughout the week as hopefully we're getting into God's Word outside of this and having our own sacred experience with Scripture and with prayer. Uh, before we jump into this text, though, I think it's really important for us to look at the broader context so that we get the most out of it. Many times when people come to church, we kind of just throw Scripture at people and assume they understand what's going on, but it's really complicated. It'd be like turning on the TV and watching, like jumping into the middle of a soap opera and having to figure out like all the different elements of going on. We got love triangles, we got people in a coma, we got acts of passion, someone has amnesia. You know, it'd be really, really confusing. And the scripture that we're looking at is over 2,000 years ago from a different language, a different context, for a different purpose. And so for us, it takes some work for us to get the most out of the sacred ancient scripture. And so to help us out, before we geek out into this word, I kind of just want to help out just by sharing a little framework, a little context of what we're looking at. So the book of Jonah was written around 780 B.C. And this book of Jonah is part of the Old Testament, part of the ancient scriptures that the Hebrew people, the Jewish nation, as well as uh, Christian tradition we hold uh, sacred. And this particular section of Scripture is called the Minor Prophets. They're minor not because they're less important, but because they're shorter in length. And these different prophetic writings was God speaking to God's people through a person, a spokesperson, a prophet. And out of all the different Minor Prophets, the most popular one, the most known one, is Jonah. And Jonah starts off like pretty much all of the other ones begin. It starts off with this in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah son of Amittai. Now, that's completely normal, but usually in a prophetic word, then Scripture goes on to this almost like poetic saying where God is now speaking from this one person, this one spokesperson to God's people, but Jonah is like altogether different. What we find in this writing is that God is speaking to God's people, not through just Jonah being the conduit, the mouthpiece of God, But what we will see through Jonah's life, we are beginning to see the character of God, understand God's personhood, God's posture to God's people, and also maybe as we look at Jonah, we see a little bit of ourself. But of course, when we think of Jonah, what is the thing we think of? The whale, which is like, that word's actually not used in the scripture, but it's called a big fish. But it is, that's like what we think of. We think of the flannel graph or the VeggieTale version of this story, and that's kind of what it stays at, which if that's what we think of, then the very first question that we have is, did that really happen? Like, are we actually going to believe that that really happened? And it kind of sets up this, either it's true and I believe it, or it's false, and what are we even doing with the Bible anymore? Are we really that narrow-minded, you know, like, or don't we know better? And so... If that is the framework for us looking at the story, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss the beauty of what this story is. I do think uh, that question is actually really important. Like, do we actually believe? Do we actually believe this story? 
there's three different ways that people in the Christian tradition usually look at the story. One is it's like a parable. It's a complete work of fiction meant to teach us something true, like something like the tortoise and the hare. You know, like, I'm sure that really happened at some point, but did it really happen in history? So that's one version of it. Uh, another way people look at it is like this autobiographical account of Jonah from himself. Like, it's 100% accurate. He, this happened to him in detail, and he wrote about it for you and I. And so many people in the Christian tradition read Jonah like that, um, and so that's very much the case. Now, what we do know is that Jonah was a real prophet. He's written about in 2 Kings. Jesus spoke about Jonah as if Jonah was legit, like there's something to learn from Jonah. And the cities that this story talk about, like we have historical documents outside of Scripture that talk about Joppa, Nineveh, and Tarshish. So these places, this person, they're, they're like a part of history. So that can't be disputed. The third way that people read the book of Jonah is as historical satire. So satire is a different kind of genre of scripture. You know, you think of Saturday Night Live. Did anyone watch Nate Bergazzi last night in Saturday Night Live? Me? I'm, I'm thankful that it's recorded. I can watch it later on. But satire takes, usually takes actual people and actual events and then blows them out of proportion to make some sort of commentary that's situated in real life. And so not only are the individuals there, but what, what we can learn about satire is something about the way in which we live as people, as me and you. So for instance, when you look at the book of Jonah, there's little notes of this, about this being a work of satire, as well as of history. The Hebrew word big or large is used 15 times in this book that's only 48 verses. 40 verses of all Jonah, and 15 times we hear of the big storm, the fish that was huge, the city that was so big that it took Jonah three days to walk across it. There's no city in that time period that was big enough that it would take three days to walk across it. But what we see is that the author's trying to do something with us understanding the, the bigness, the proportion of what we're looking at. It's almost like a caricature. And it this is so that satire can do what it always does. It paints something that's true, that's accurate, and it incriminates us without even us knowing it. These experiences, I believe, are rooted in history, uh, and they are also beautifully written about so that there could be a true message. Now, whether or not we want to debate whether or not we should read the Bible, literally, uh, we can have that debate, but I think works like Jonah whether or not we take it literally, we have to take it seriously, in part because Jesus did. We are able to see the story and see the folly that is Jonah's life, and we see something that's deeply true about me and you, even though we're 2,000 years past this book. We look at what the story is as a mirror as well, as well as a picture of who God is. So again, this prophetic writing begins like the rest of work of prophecies. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now for the Jewish reader, right off the bat, they know something. The word Jonah literally means dove, which is this image of God's peace. So think about Noah's ark and like the dove coming back with the, the, the branch and that being the sign that it's all safe. Or when Jesus was baptized, what descended from heaven was this dove, this sense of peace from the father to the son. So we have Jonah, meant to be the symbol of peace. And then we have son of Amittai. The word Amittai means faithfulness. 
And so Jonah is the son of faithfulness. Now, right off the bat, we are introduced to this messenger of peace and the son of faithfulness. And as we will see, Jonah is the exact opposite of his name. Like he's living in spite of his name. This is satire. Jonah is called to go to the great city of Nineveh, the big city of Nineveh, because of of its wickedness. It's made its way to God. But verse 3 says, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship and bound for that port. Now this map might might be helpful for us. So Jonah's story begins here. Uh, Jerusalem, Joppa is a port city where like modern day Tel Aviv is. And his calling is to go to Nineveh. It's to go, uh, it's to go west. Instead, he goes east. Am I right? Am I backwards in that? Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, so he's called to go. Now, Tarshish is actually like modern-day Spain. So he's going in the absolute opposite direction from where he's being called to go. And so immediately we know that Jonah is running from God. And what we find in the text is, He's not running from Nineveh. He's not running from the people of Nineveh, but he's running from God. I grew up thinking about the story that Jonah was afraid of Nineveh because they were murderous and violent, which they actually were historically. There's uh, is cataloged how violent of people, uh, people of Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire were. They treated violence like a delicacy. So, of course, Jonah would be running from them. But what the text is saying here, it gives like a this clarity that Jonah is actually running from God. And what we'll find in this story, spoiler alert, is that we find out clearly why Jonah is running. Jonah is not running out of fear of the Ninevites. He's actually running out of fear of the mercy of God. Jonah hates that God might love his enemies. That's one of the main messages, that Jonah hates that God might actually love and forgive his enemies. So therefore, Jonah boards a boat, and they're off. God will have to find someone else to do this job. It's the worst job in his idea. Uh, So he's out. Someone else is going to have to do it. He's gone. But then a storm comes, and it's so violent, it's so big, that the sailors fear for their lives. And where's Jonah? Well, Jonah is asleep at the bottom of the boat. Does anyone else have the gift of being able to sleep Whenever, wherever, it's the best, guys. As one of them, like, it's one of my greatest strengths, my greatest traits, uh, which is awful if you're married to someone who can't do that. Like Jen, she has like a 30-minute process where she lays in bed, and then she thinks about a conversation that she had two weeks ago, or maybe how the Gilmore Girls ended, even though she doesn't care about the show, or where are the kids' water bottles. It takes about 30 minutes for her to descend close to slumber, and then I come in, and I see that she's slightly awake. So then, of course, I'm going to ask my question about tomorrow or whatever. And she'll, like, frustratingly, like, start to answer. And before she's even done with her answer, my legs are twitching, which means I'm asleep. I'm long gone. It's the worst. It's so annoying. I love it. <laughs> Jonah here is, like, sound asleep on the bottom of this boat. And this actually mirrors another story from Scripture. It mirrors another story of Jesus in the middle of a boat, in a deep sleep, even though there's a, this awesome storm, and the disciples come to him and ask, don't you care about us? So we find in many ways Jesus and Jonah are very similar in this moment, but for very different reasons. Jesus, as he responded to his disciples, why is he able to experience peace in the middle of a storm? Well, he trusts the Father. 
Like he just trusts that God has them. So therefore, we can be people of peace. Jonah here is like doing the complete opposite. He's actually at peace because he couldn't care less. Like he's resigned. He's done. He's given up hope. He doesn't care. It just like doesn't matter to him anymore. He's so spiritually destitute that he's ready to die. Now, the story is sharing in vivid ways for me what happens to the soul when we run from God, when we're people who absolutely run from God, when we, in particular for this story, when we have made peace with hatred. What happens to the soul? Jonah is experiencing true darkness, as Dr. Cornell West would say. He's having a spiritual blackout. It's blinding him, it's blinding his soul, darkening his soul, and so Jonah runs. And what we find is actually something profound when it comes to geography. Jonah thinks that he's going west, like he's, his calling is to the east, and he's just going to go west. But what we actually look at when we look at geography, he's not only moving west, but he's going from Jerusalem down to the port city, down into a ship, now into the bottom of the ship, and what we'll find is he's going deeper and more low and more low, more dark. And even this, at the end of this chapter, what we find is Jonah is lower than any other person has ever been in the history of humanity. He's at the, the bottom of the sea. So this running is actually doing more than running away from God. He's actually going further and further downward, more and more dark. And Jonah is so darkened by what he wants is that he's ready to die. And the storm rages on. The sailors take turns praying to each of their own gods, but it's just getting worse. And so they cast lots, which is like ancient spin the bottle, you know, but for like a different purpose, (laughs) I guess. And so it lands on Jonah. Something's wrong with this guy. This guy's at fault. So like they ask him, who are you? What have you done? And Jonah speaks for the first time. This prophet whose calling was to speak for God, he speaks for the first time. He says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And for these sailors, it makes no sense, right? Because if your God's not particularly located or bound to just one element, if your God is actually the Lord of heaven and a sea and land, like pretty much everything, why in the world would you run? Like there's... There's no way to get away from this God. And they don't know what to do with Jonah because they're, they're about to perish. And so they ask Jonah, like, well, what should we do? And Jonah's answer is to throw me over. This reveals how dark Jonah's heart and his soul and his mind were. Because what else could Jonah have said? What else could have Jonah done? Let me pray. I need to ask for forgiveness. I'm not going to have your lives perish because of me. Or maybe his response could have been, it's time to turn east. I have a calling, and I'm so sorry, but if we want to live, I have to go somewhere else. But instead, he'd rather die. He would rather die than seeing God actually use his life for forgiveness. Instead of following what Jonah said in verse 13, these men tried to do their best to row back to the land. They could not, and the sea grew wilder than before. And as we see in the story, this story is so beautifully like depicting the opposites, like flipping everything over. These sailors who might be known as vile and crude, they're actually the people of compassion. They're not just going to throw this person overboard. Instead, they're trying their best 
to live with compassion and humility and mercy, but it still does not matter. And then they cried out to the Lord. This is the first time that someone's praying to God or speaking to God, and it's not this this, uh, Jewish uh, prophet, a man of high standing. It's said as the outsider, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, Lord. Have done what is as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. I envision Jonah hitting the water and slowly descending with his arms crossed, with a deep frown shaking his head, no. But meanwhile, above the surface, a worship service is breaking out. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. With great irony, guys, God is using Jonah's life and his rebellion to still make God's name great, to still display who God is to people outside the boundaries and the borders of that time. We have these men experiencing the powerful and mighty hand of God, and they end up worshiping him in spite of Jonah's rejection and apathy and indifference. In verse 16, we find these sailors, they went from talking about the gods, like each of their own gods, to using the word Yahweh, the covenantal relational God of the Hebrew people, this covenant that they are now making with the God, the God of all, and in this relational way, they're now declaring God's name. It's not just that you are the God of the heavens and the lands and the seas, but now you are my God, you are our God, the Lord of the world. And this is the great humor of this story. The roles are all flipped upside down. The sailors are the ones who are seeking God, who are humbled, who are fearful of the Lord. And Jonah is stubborn, self-centered. He's rejecting God's call and ultimately rejecting God's name or his own name. Jonah is not living out as the messenger of peace. He's not the son of faithfulness. This is the satire of the story of Jonah. It's seeking to derail God's plans, but as we see, God will have God's way. Our own rebellion, our own rejection of God doesn't ruin God's plans or desires. The Lord will have his way. It just might take more scars, more detours, maybe more, some, maybe more storms, and even sometimes God might even draw more people into the story, but God's will will not be thwarted. And don't be surprised if God will even use our running, redeeming our running to something more beautiful. Jonah was running from the possibility of having outsiders turn to God, and in the end, that's exactly what was happening. More outsiders were being brought in. But it didn't have to be this way. For me, that's the kind of the warning that we find, especially in this first chapter of Jonah. We have this warning, is that so far, Jonah's displaying the power of disobedience and stubbornness. Jonah hears from God and immediately runs. And it's so easy for us on this side of like history to look at this story, this writing, and see Jonah's disobedience. Because God literally spoke to him. Jonah was actually told where to go. But for our lives, our disobedience might be more cloaked, more nuanced. It's not as simple as, well, God doesn't speak to me that way, right? And so we can be dismissive of the idea of listening and obeying God's call in our life. 
I think often about obedience in part because I'm trying to parent three children. And every day seems to be a lesson in obedience and disobedience, especially at bedtime. A bedtime is a unique time where they love to display the power of disobedience. And all three of our kids, are, they have different strategies around doing what they want to at bed, bedtime. Jack is our seven-year-old. He has a very unique memory. Um, though you might have to remind him 17 different times to take something to his room, at bedtime, he will remember the one time you kind of said that you would get him a snack, like five hours ago. And he'll bring that up and go, actually, objection, you said something about a granola bar, Father? Never produced such item? And that's his plan. Our youngest, Allie, is not sneaky or deceptive with her disobedience. It's outright. It's flagrant. It's loud. Sadly, it's cute. It's very strategic. But anytime you have an idea, it's like, good idea. Why don't you put it in the suggestion box, old man? I got other plans. Like, that's kind of Allie's posture in life. And our oldest, when it comes to obedience, she never disobeys because she's the firstborn, right? And she's also in this room, so I can't really say anything. (laughs) But when she was younger, her strategy was, like, so smart. Like, bedtime would happen, we'd have this sweet moment, and I'd be walking out, and then she'd ask some question like this, like, Dad, how how does God hear all our prayers? And, like, it's like, oh, come on, you can't. You can't spiritualize it. How can God hear all our prayers? Really? God doesn't. God's asleep, and so should you be. Go to bed. It's so infuriating at times, like, to watch these little people disobey the people who are, like, literally keeping them alive. You know, like, what else do we have to do, like, to earn your trust? Just listen. Like, our life would be so much better. I'd be so much cooler. I used to be so cool and fun. Uh, and so often, in my disappointment and annoyance by wa- watching uh, a kid take five minutes to army crawl up the stairs, I often think about um, how God must see me when God gives me loving instruction, like, hey, Mark, it's actually time to leave that behind. Like, it's actually, it's actually time for you to step out in more courage. It's actually care- time for you to care about what's more important, to put that thing down. It's time to move on. It's time to release control. I look for the escape path. I might spiritualize things. I remember things I'd rather do or maybe I say the idea of, well, I'll get to that eventually. I'll eventually obey. And it's not that I don't trust God, but I just don't trust that God's idea of what's best for me is best. And so I have ways of moving aside. And in subtle ways, I turn I turn to the other direction. So Jonah has different ideas of what he would like to have happen in Nineveh. According to Jonah, Yahweh is the God of Israel. It's not the God of the nations. Going to preach in Nineveh is not what Jonah would like his life to be about. And so Jonah runs for his life. He runs for his version of what his life should be about. And what Jonah fails to see is not running like for his life. He's running from life. He's running from the opportunity to partner with God. He's running from the opportunity of seeing the enemy transform to live out his own namesake, to be a person of deep peace, to be a son of faithfulness. We see Jonah's running from everything that would actually expand his soul to make him fully alive. 
And we have the darkness of Jonah who's ready to end it all, descending into the depths, just stuck in his stubbornness. Maybe we're running to, maybe it's not to a distant land, but maybe we're running from a hard calling. Maybe we're running from a change. We're running from trusting God. Maybe we're running to our comforts, to what's assumable or knowable or comfortable. We're running to busyness. I'm beginning to think that what it means to fully follow God, to fully follow Jesus, is to have a growing sense of an awareness of where we need to stop running. Or in a less attractive terms, following Jesus is trust displayed in obedience. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's like to actually obey Jesus, his calling in his life, because he's done everything to prove that he's trustworthy. When was the last time you did something contrary to your desires, your appetites, your plans, simply because you felt led by the way of Jesus? Either through scripture, through God's word, through the counsel of a trusted spiritual companion, or through the nudging of God's spirit in the quietness of prayer. Obedience to Jesus begins with trusting what Christ declares is good is good. Jonah thinks the journey to Nineveh would be too difficult, like he couldn't handle it, that Tarshish would be better. But what Jonah doesn't see is the storms and the fish that's ahead of him. Jonah here in this story has the opportunity to learn to trust. But as we will see, Jonah is more than a story of disobedience and stubbornness. This is also a story of second chances. What Jonah displays is regardless of how long you have been running, how far you're willing to go, or how stubborn that you might be, God will always provide a way to turn to God again. Your stubbornness is nothing compared to the stubborn mercy of God, who is new for you every single morning. God's love is stubborn. It's loyal. It's fixed upon you. Notice the last verse of this chapter. It's kind of like a... uh, Uh, It's kind of like a cliffhanger, right, if you were to look at this chapter, but it's actually beautiful. Notice the last verse of this chapter, with Jonah sinking into the ocean. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I want us to sit with that word provided. God's provision. In the midst of his running, in his stubbornness, in his rejection, God made a way for Jonah to come back to him. In spite of his own desires, in spite of his own wants, God still provides a way. And the same is the case for you and me. God will always provide us a way to turn back to mercy and grace and forgiveness and God's love again. Though there might always be a ship to Tarshish, God will always provide a way towards obedience. And ultimately, this provision for you and I is through Jesus. That's our ultimate provision, is that we, through Christ, have been given a way to return to God, to run to life again, to experience being 
back in the calling that God has given us. Jesus will be the truer Jonah. Jesus will display what Jonah's name was meant to mean, to be a messenger of peace, that Jesus wants to give you peace and to teach us to be a messenger of peace in this world. Jesus would display what it means to be a son of faithfulness, to live faithfully to to God's will and to display what it's like to run towards your life again. And ultimately what we find through Jesus is what Jonah was always called to do, which is to call people who seem far from God back to God's mercy and grace again. Jesus still is our provision and God's provision for you every single day. This is your provision of mercy and grace. So this week, my hope for our church, my hope for myself, is that we'll let Jonah's prophecy teach us to not run from our life, to actually learn to trust that what God has for us, what God calls us to is the best for our souls and our communities and for this world, and to see that God's provided a way for us to turn, no matter how far we have run, for us to turn to God's love and peace again. It is here for you in this moment. It's here today. And also, just don't be fooled. In the end, God's stubborn mercy will have God's way. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.